So if you would turn with me as the children and uh, feel free to head along with them, parents, if you want to bring them over and drop them off, um, or they'll, they'll just head over together. Either way is fine. Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 is found on page 71 in the Pew Bibles. So we've been going through this uh, book in the Old Testament that tells a story of how God led the Israelites from bondage to belonging. Uh, they were slaves in the land of Egypt, uh, and they were hopeless and oppressed, and God heard their cries and intervened on their behalf and mercifully, by his grace, uh, rescued them and saved them and brought them uh, to and brought them out of bondage in Egypt, but he brought them to uh, a place of belonging to God, to understanding what it meant to be God's own people, uh, to have God who was looking after them, taking care of them, uh, being uh, their Lord. Uh, so we have read uh, and gone through the story of how God rescued them from Egypt, and that's a wonderful, dramatic story. You can read it in the first 18 chapters of Exodus, and then how God has led them through the wilderness and here. Today, at chapter 19, they arrive at Mount Sinai, and they're going to park here and camp here for the rest of the book, and God's going to talk to them a lot and uh, say a lot to them, and there will be a few different things that happen here, um, uh, but this is, uh, that's sort of where we are in the story as a whole. So let me read chapter 19 for us, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, on the third new moon... Uh, that is the third month after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So what does it mean to belong to God? In other words, what does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom or to be one of God's holy people set apart for his purposes? Uh, about five years ago, I took our kids to see the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island. Uh, from uh, 1892 to 1954, more than 12 million immigrants entered the United States through that one checkpoint. In fact, in the year 1907, more than a million people passed through Ellis Island in just that one year. Most had traveled across the ocean, uh, sometimes fleeing famine or war or persecution in hope of a better life. And Ellis Island was the place where they were examined and the vast majority were officially welcomed into the United States. Uh, today, people estimate that approximately one-third of the U.S. population can trace their ancestry to immigrants who arrived in America at Ellis Island. Uh, so perhaps even many of us here today. Now, this morning's story in Exodus focuses on the arrival of the Israelites at an even more pivotal checkpoint in their history. Uh, so, so far, we've seen God has led them out of bondage in Egypt, brought them through the wilderness, and now they've come to the mountain of God. Uh, this is the same place where Moses first encountered God in the burning bush back in chapter 3. And at that time, God said to Moses, when you've led the people out of Egypt... You'll all come and worship God on this mountain. And now, here they are. God's word has come true. And just as Moses received his calling and his mission from God at the burning bush at Mount Sinai, the people as a whole are now going to receive their calling and their mission from God here at Mount Sinai. As verse 6 says, they are now God's holy nation, a kingdom of priests. In other words, God's representatives in the world. So this is an episode that they would look back on for the rest of their lives and even for the rest of their people's history. They would look back on uh, coming to Mount Sinai where they encountered God and where they, who had formerly been slaves uh, and, and sort of homeless in the land of Egypt, they now came to belong to God as his very own people. So the main theme uh, that I want to look at in this chapter is what does it mean to belong to God? What did it mean for them back then, and what does it mean for us today? Uh, and I want to focus on three themes that we see in this chapter. Uh, number one, belonging to God means relating to God on his terms, not ours. Second, belonging to God means reckoning with the reality of God's holiness. And third, 
Belonging to God means relating to him through his appointed mediator. So we're going to look through each of these three points about what it means, what it meant for the Israelites to belong to God, and what it means for us to belong to God uh, as his people set apart for his purposes. Uh, so the first thing we see in this chapter is that belonging to God means relating to him on his terms, not ours. And this is verses 1 through 8, especially verses 4 through 6. So verses 4 through 6 of chapter 19 are key verses in the book of Exodus because God sets out the terms of his relationship with the people. Uh, and in verses 4 to 6, we see two things. First, we see that only God's grace saves us. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God begins, before he gets to the commandments, and he's going to get, next week we'll start looking at the Ten Commandments, and there's going to be a whole bunch of other laws that God gives them. But before he gets to that, he reminds them that he saved them by his grace. He says, remember what I've done for you. I brought you out of Egypt on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Uh, and this is, uh, for, for, all of, for any of us who are Christian believers, this is also where our story begins. God has rescued us from wherever he might have found us and brought us on eagle's wings and brought us to himself. That's how our story with God begins, that God has intervened on our behalf by his grace, by his generosity and mercy. Uh, it doesn't start with our achievements. It doesn't start with us uh, following God as hard as we as best as we can it starts with God's grace uh, so some verses in the New Testament that have the same theme Jesus said to his disciples in John 15 16 he said you did not choose me but I chose you and the book of first John says we love him because he first loved us right the only reason that we love God or choose to follow God is because he has first loved us and chosen us and reached out to us in his grace and mercy. And that's what God wants the people to be reminded of before everything else. He says, I've carried you with the strength and tenderness of an eagle. Uh, in the Bible, uh, sometimes an eagle symbolizes strength. Uh, eagles can soar to great heights and swoop down with terrifying speed and fly for long distances without growing weary. But the Bible also points to the eagle as an image of tender care. Uh, in fact, in the end of Moses' life, uh, Moses uh, composes a poem or a song in Deuteronomy 32, and he says this, The Lord found Israel in a desert land, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. So Moses is saying, the Lord has taken care of us like an eagle takes care of its young. That's the God who has saved us and who has continued to take care of us uh, by his grace. So that's the first sort of theme that we see when God says what it means to relate to him is that our relationship with God starts only by God's grace and not because of anything else we've done. But the second half uh, of verses 5 to 6 is that we're called into a life of obedience to God. So if you look at verse 5, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Now that word covenant is a very important word uh, in the Bible. 
So in the ancient world, a covenant referred to a binding agreement, like a treaty or like a marriage, right? In both cases, it was sort of something official and binding that bound two people together or that bound two nations together. Uh, and, and most often um, in treaties in the ancient world, there usually would be a strong and powerful nation that would, and a weak and vulnerable nation and the weak and vulnerable nation would want a treaty with the strong and powerful nation because the strong and powerful nation could promise to protect them, but the strong and powerful nation wanted the treaty with the weak and vulnerable nation because they wanted the weak and vulnerable nation to be loyal to them, right? So that's the idea of a covenant or a treaty, and it was often between a stronger one and a weaker one, and that's the image God uses to talk about his relationship with the people of Israel. It's not a treaty between two equals, it's a treaty between a God who is strong uh, and who promises to protect his people, but God also uh, asks them, says, you need to promise to be loyal to me and not be sort of messing around uh, with other idols and other gods. Um, so in the rest of the book of Exodus, God spells out the terms of his covenant, uh, also in uh, Leviticus and uh, the first 10 chapters of Numbers, uh, so we'll look at some of the details of uh, God's covenant as we go along. Um, but, you know, obeying God's word wasn't just something that was only important to the Israelites, right? If we look in the New Testament, we look at the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus and the apostles both talk about the importance of, as we've been saved by God's grace, learning to obey God, right? So Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, obey my commands, Right? Don't just say you love me and then pay no mind to what I say. Like, if you actually are loyal to me, do what I say. Um, I, he says, I am your Lord and teacher. Uh, Jesus didn't say, obey my commands when you feel like it, if they appeal to you, if they make sense to you, and as long as it's not too much of a bother. Right? We can't say, I belong to God, if we have no intention of obeying his commands. That's the challenge here, right? We're only saved by God's grace, but we're called into a life of growing obedience. Uh, in verse 5, God says, If you'll obey me, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, you might wonder, what is that? What do those phrases mean? Kingdom of priests. What in the world does that really mean? Um, so, in the Old Testament, the people of Israel had a special calling uh, they were to be God's holy nation. In other words, that word holy means set apart for God's purposes in the world. Uh, they are to reflect God's character by praising God for his grace and by obeying his laws. And most of the Old Testament focuses in like a zoom lens on the people of Israel in particular and, and God's dealings with them and how he's teaching them to rely on his grace and to obey his commands. But there's also a bigger picture throughout the Old Testament and verses four through six give us a glimpse of the wide angle lens because God also says, all the earth is mine in verse five. Not just you, the, my people of Israel, but the whole earth belongs to me. And you know, Genesis has showed us that God made every person in his image and that God has a plan for people from all nations, right? So even when the Old Testament is mostly sort of zooming in on the people of Israel, they have a purpose to uh, what did God say to Abraham? I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? So God's dealings with Israel are ultimately for the sake of bringing 
his message to the world. Um, and I think that's part of what it means when he says, you are to be a kingdom of priests. So priests in the Old Testament had two main jobs. One is they represented God before the people by teaching the people God's word and God's ways. So they would sort of stand in front of the people and say, here's what God is teaching you. But they would also sort of turn around and stand before God on behalf of the people in prayer and when they offered sacrifices. And they would sort of come before God on behalf of all the people and say, God, have mercy on your people. Because, and, and they would offer the sacrifices that God told them to offer on the people's behalf. Uh, and in one sense, Israel's job as a whole in relation to the rest of the world was a priestly job in that sense, right? They were supposed to teach the other nations God's law, God's word, God's ways, represent God to the other nations, reflect God's character to the rest of the world, and they were supposed to bring the nations of the world before God in prayer and ask God to uh, have mercy on the other nations, right? And of course, ultimately, Jesus Christ uh, fulfills that calling perfectly to be our great high priest and our representative, right? So through Jesus, we know the truth about God, and Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we can draw near to God through him. Uh, so if you're part of the body of Christ, if you've come to believe in Jesus, this is also our mission too, uh, to be a kingdom of priests in the world. In other words, to be God's representatives in the world. So the New Testament uses the same words, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, We are, the Christian church, Christian believers are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So just as the people of Israel, God rescued them from their bondage in Egypt, that's also what he's done for us in a greater way, right? And we're also called to be this royal priesthood, this kingdom of priests, God's representatives in the world and bringing the rest of the world before God in prayer through Christ. Um, so, uh, you know, think about it this way. What is our mission as a church, right? Some churches function like a holy huddle, right? A group of people who define themselves by being morally pure, being theologically correct, and separating themselves from anyone who isn't morally pure and theologically correct according to their definition. The problem with all holy huddles, though, is that they inevitably become infected with pride. And it's not the pursuit of holiness that's the real problem, it's the lack of grace at the foundation. Now, other churches function like an excellent social club, a really nice and friendly group of people who take good care of each other and accept each other unconditionally. The problem with that idea of church is that God is not really in that idea of church. It's just a human-centered idea. God is at best on the periphery, on the, out, on the edges. So we need to exchange our limited human ideas about 
what our church is for and take up this grand vision of what God says his people are to be. We're to be a kingdom of priests in the world with Jesus Christ as our great high priest and our ultimate king. And because we're united to him, we can represent God to the rest, grow it, reflect God's character to the rest of the world. We can bring the needs of the world before God in prayer. We can show God's compassion and mercy and righteousness and truth in how we live our lives. I mean, if you, can, if you think about it, that has a lot of implications. That's a grand vision of being the church that God has called us to be. Not a sort of self-contained holy huddle that's just trying to protect itself from the rest of the world and keep everybody else out. And not a just nice, friendly group of people that doesn't really have any purpose beyond being nice and friendly to other people. But it's, no, we need to, to take on uh, this mission that God has given us. To praise God for his grace and to obey his commands and by doing those things to represent him in the world. So that's what it means to be a royal priesthood. So that's the first point. Belonging to God means relating to him on his terms and not ours, uh, knowing we're saved by his grace and taking up his call to obedience. Second point, this is verses 9 through 25. Belonging to God also means reckoning with the reality of God's holiness. Now, what does it mean that God is holy? Right? That's a word that we don't use often if you're right, talking to people on the street or in the supermarket or in school or in your workplace, right? The word holy is not really a common word, but we talk about it a lot in church. So, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean that God is holy? It means that God is categorically different from us and that approaching God is a very serious matter. We can't just approach God in the same way we would approach another human being. Uh, and you see this in how God told the Israelites to prepare for his arrival. Verse 9, the Lord says, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. And then he says, Wash your clothes, which is no small task in the desert. Right? Might have to take turns at the spring, whatever, wherever it was. And abstain from sexual relations for three days. So you might have heard as I was reading verse 13, and it says, Be ready for the third day. Don't go near a woman. You might think, oh, what does that mean? That doesn't sound nice. Um, so that was a sort of euphemistic way of saying abstain from sexual relations uh, for a time. So it's not saying that women are unholy or that sexual relations in marriage are unholy, um, but it's, uh, there's nothing wrong or shameful about being female or about sexual relations in marriage. Uh, those are, that's part of God's plan from the beginning, but here, something far more important was happening. The people were about to encounter the true and living God. And so God says, you need to pause everything else that you would normally be doing, right? Wash your clothes, take a pause on all your normal routines because you are about to encounter the creator of the universe. And that's more important than all your regular daily routines, right? Sometimes in the Bible, God says, fast and pray for a time. Right? doesn't mean that eating is bad. Right? It just means sometimes there are things that are even more important than eating. Right? Seeking God, sometimes asking for God's help in a desperate situation. Sometimes Christians might fast. That means sort of skip a couple of meals or, or one meal uh, to spend that time in prayer. To really say, God, you're more important than even my daily food. 
Um, that's the point that God was making here. Uh, uh, further, verse 12 and 13, did you notice these verses? They had to stay within tightly defined boundaries. God says, take care, don't go up the mountain. Right? God was going to come down on the mountain. Don't, don't you just run up the mountain. Right? Don't, basically, there's all these warnings. Don't approach God don't, without reckoning with the reality of his holiness. He's categorically different than you. You can't just saunter up to God like you walk up to any other person on earth. So only Moses could go all the way up to the top of the mountain. That's what verse 20 says. The priest could go partway up, verse 22, but not all the way. And the rest of the people, excuse me, the rest of the people had to stay at the bottom of the mountain. Uh, so Mount Sinai is actually very much like the tabernacle that God will later instruct Moses to build because the tabernacle had three main sections. The inner holy of holies, only the high priest could go only once a year. That was where sort of God's presence dwelt. Then there was the holy place outside that where the priest could enter, and then there was the outer court where the rest of the people could go, right? So it's interesting, right? Even if they obey all of God's instructions, they still can't come all the way into God's presence because God is holy, and the people are, are, are sinful and can't just walk into God's presence all by themselves. They had to stay at a distance. Then verse 16 through 20, the Lord comes down in a storm with thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and fire and an earthquake. The whole mountain trembles and with a trumpet blast that grew louder and louder. It's as if the whole created order goes into upheaval, trembling before its creator. I wonder where you were during the thunderstorm on Wednesday. Right? It was pretty, it was, it, I mean, it was, we've had a couple lately, right? You want to be in a safe place, right? When the thunder and lightning, when there's no time between them, it's not six seconds, 6,000 feet away. Oh, I've got, okay, I've got some distance. You see, encountering God is, uh, is, is even more fearsome than being outside in a thunderstorm or being or an earthquake or uh, near a forest fire, right? That's why God, these were only the physical manifestations of God coming before the people. Then verse 21, 25, God repeats the warnings. He says, don't let the people break through or God will break out against them. And then if you look at chapter 20, verse 18, you see the people's reaction after God speaks to them. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to, uh, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Right? They, they got the message. So here's, here's, here's the point we're looking at here. The God of the Bible is holy. That means we can't approach him carelessly or lightly. Religion is not a game that we can manipulate to serve our own ends. God's words are not a buffet that we can pick and choose what we like and throw the rest in the trash. God is not a box to check off on Sunday mornings so that we can say, I've done that, and now I don't have to think about him for the rest of the week. The Bible says God is a consuming fire who deserves our full allegiance. 
He's worthy of our reverence and awe. And that's not just the case in the Old Testament. Hebrews 12 says God is, God is a consuming fire. And so we should reckon with the reality of his holiness. But of course that raises a question. Because if God is that holy that we can't just approach him all by ourselves and even if we obey his, all, all of his commands, according to Moses, we can, can't really come all the way into his presence. How do we connect with God? How do we come close to God? How do we know that we belong to God and not just stay far away for our whole lives? That brings us to the third point. Belonging to God means relating to him on his terms, not ours. Reckoning with the reality of God's holiness. But third and finally, it means responding to God through his appointed mediator. So through this whole chapter, God and the people never speak directly to each other. Do you notice that? God speaks to Moses. Moses takes God's word to the people. The people might talk to Moses. Moses goes back to God on their behalf. God speaks to Moses again. He takes his word, the words to the people. And so it goes. Verse, in fact, three times in this chapter, Moses goes up and down the mountain. Must have been tired at the end of the day. He climbed Mount Sinai three times. Right? Verse 3, Moses goes up to God. Verse 7, he goes down to the people. Verse 8, Moses reports their words to God. Verse 9, or let's see, verse 9, the Lord speaks to Moses. Verse 14, Moses goes down again. Verse 20, he goes up again. Then verse 25, he goes down. What's the point? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. The point is that Moses is God's appointed mediator. He's standing in the gap between God and the people. He brings God's words to the people, and then he brings the people before God. He's acting like a priest, right? Representing the people to God, representing God to the people. And Moses was a good and faithful mediator here. He did everything God told him to do in this chapter. But what we see in this chapter is that Moses could never bridge the gap between God and the people. And in fact, notice that at the beginning of chapter 19, the people say, everything God said, we'll do it. But then after, in chapter 20, verse 19, they say, you speak to us and we'll listen and don't let God speak to us or we'll die. Right? At the end, they're even further away from God than they were at the beginning. At the beginning, they were eager and ready to commit to obey God. And at the end, they're like, whoa, we don't know what we're going to do here. You see, the revelation of God and his law at Mount Sinai does not bridge the gap to bring us near to God. It shows us that God is holy, but it doesn't make a way for us to enter his presence with freedom and joy. And confidence. And if anything, we only become more conscious of how wide the chasm is. That God is holy and we are not. And we can't just come right into his presence all on our own. And you know, many people live their whole lives with that sense about God. Many people live their whole lives thinking that there's a God out there somewhere, but I better not get too close because otherwise I might get zapped because I know. I know there's some things that God probably doesn't like in my life. And so sometimes people sort of listen in from a distance or they try to find a mediator, right? Someone like Moses. Well, you pray for me or you, you, you tell me what, what God is saying. 
right? Somebody try, try to find someone to go between us. Here's the good news. The story of the Bible does not end here at Mount Sinai with fire and darkness and gloom and storm. It doesn't end with simply recognizing God's holiness. The Bible goes on to tell that there's a better mediator than Moses. That one day, God didn't just choose one of the humans like Moses to be a mediator and go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, but never bridge the gap. One day, God himself came. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who is fully God, to come into this world and become one of us and come all the way to the foot of the mountain and come all the way to the darkest places that we find ourselves in and to bring us all the way with him to God. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He entered our sin and our darkness and our shame and took that all upon himself and became our high priest, our perfect representative, and he offered a perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that the gap between us and God would be forever bridged. That's why Hebrews 12 says, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to his sprinkled blood. You see, there's a new way that we can draw near to God through Jesus. So that's the invitation. It's to come to God relying on what Jesus has done completely. Right? When Jesus came into the world, he didn't say, wash your clothes and fast and pray for a while, and then maybe you can come a little closer, but not all the way. No, Jesus came as the word of God who dwelt among us so that we might have God's very own presence dwelling with us. That's what it means to belong to God. It means to relate to him on his terms, not ours. To know that we're saved only by his grace and we're called to obey. It means reckoning with the reality of God's holiness, but it means drawing near to him through Jesus Christ, his appointed mediator. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray. If we haven't reckoned with what it means to belong to you, help us as we seek to take these things seriously, to recognize that you are holy and we are not, that we can't relate to you simply casually and on our own merits. But we thank you, Lord, that you have made a better way for us. Lord, you didn't just speak to us from the mountain and give us your laws and your commandments. You drew near to us in Jesus Christ and paid the sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you that through him we can draw near to you. Help us to take to heart what you're saying, what, what you're speaking to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.